You're listening to Eco Thoughts, a podcast expanding the conversation on the biodiversity and climate crisis with aesthetic, ethical, historical, and cultural perspectives. In this episode, you'll join a workshop investigating the transformative potential of cooking sustainable food, arranged by Sophie Venerscheid and Melissa Fendry. We're at the Kitchen Collective in the meatpacking district of Copenhagen, Denmark, where 12 people from different fields have been invited to participate in a cooking workshop and dinner on a Friday evening. Celebrating the transformative kitchen, that's the title of our workshop. And the purpose of this workshop is really to rethink what pleasure means in times of climate crisis. So we cannot just eat what we want. We have to think about it. What does pleasure mean today? How can we enjoy food when we know that um, the environmental footprint of food is increasing? So we really have to think about it. So what does it mean to enjoy food today? We decided to create um, a participatory experience where people, strangers, come together and cook together. Really, we wanted to bring attention to bodily behavior and interactions and different kind of sensory encounters to enter into new kind of um, relationships with food. And that's why we called the workshop Celebrating the Transformative Kitchen because the kitchen is important, the feast is important, the food is important as well, and the community is important. So there are really many aspects we want to bring together. And the 12 participants are going to cook six dishes together. And this menu was created by Takashi Saito, um, a wonderful chef. And each dish has also been thought of in relationship to Yeah, the ingredients, the stories behind the ingredients, where they're sourced, maybe some of their ritualistic meanings or symbolisms. And in the kitchen, what's great is that we have lots of, um, you know, physical gestures, very tangible gestures of moving with our bodies. We're performing bodily knowledge as we come into contact with different materials. So this menu is also created um, as a kind of pathway into various sensorial activities. Okay, everybody, if you would uh, come here again when you are ready. You will do four to six dishes. Uh, it's fairly traditional Japanese, heavily inspired by uh, a cooking style called the shojinori, which translates to uh, the enlightened kitchen, and it's the cooking style of uh, Buddhist monks in Japan. Uh, they have all these kind of archaic rules where you always have five colors, five tastes, and uh, five cooking methods. The menu is a uh, rice porridge, which is called the Nana Kusagayu, which translates to seven herb uh, porridge. And it's a dish that you would often eat in Japan after uh, New Year's, made with uh, seven herbs always, because seven is uh, a lucky number in, in, in Japan. And then we have a, uh, a seaweed dish with the raw seaweed, uh, straight out of water, just washed. 
And then you're going to do some uh, mushroom uh, gyoza dumplings. And then you'll do uh, a dish that's called agedashi tofu. And then there is a soup. And then there's also a small dessert. My name is Sophie Wennerscheid. I'm a literary scholar working at the Department of Nordic Studies and Linguistic at the University of Copenhagen. And right now I'm a humanities fellow at CAPE, the Center for Applied Ecological Thinking. And when I started my work at the center, I got the idea of doing something with Karl Blixen's famous short story, Babette's Feast. So I really, I wanted to kind of re- enact this short story because my research is on food in Danish literature and there a Karl Blixen story plays a very important role. But I was kind of unsure, okay, how can I perform this uh, wonderful literary text? And then I meet Melissa and we developed the idea together. My name is Melissa Vandry. I'm a researcher working in sound studies and sensory studies, and I also uh, work on uh, histories of performance and how we stage knowledge. I'm very interested in how listening and sound are ways of knowing the world and how we make our worlds through sound. The kitchen is a really important, familiar space that we don't pay attention to. Sound is ubiquitous. Um, Kitchens and food rhythm our lives. Um, It's the vibrational kind of matter that keeps us together. And we have to learn how to open up space to begin questioning these changing ecosystems. And with this workshop, having this common space together is a start to see how the kitchen can actually function in in this building opening of questions. What does sustainability mean and what does it mean to eat climate-friendly today? And uh, coming back to Karl Blixen's story, I mean, uh, there we have this French uh, cooking culture on the one hand and we have this frugal, anti-pleasure food culture on the other hand. And of course, we do not want to fall back to this uh, frugal, grumpy food culture. But is there a possibility to eat more sustainably, to eat more frugally? I mean, there is this concept of eco-frugality. That was also one important question uh, to me, at least. Is this a concept that we can... Um, we think in a way that we um, prevent the collapse of our planet. We have two bowls of rice here. The core of Japanese uh, cooking, <laughs> always cold water. So what you do is uh, you both massage it a little bit and you rinse it. We're going to do it three times. The first wash is the most important one. And always now if two of you would uh, come forth, to volunteer to wash the rice. So when you wash rice, you use a lot of water. But the first wash, you use less water. If you come here, turn on the sink. Turn on the sink. Yeah, turn it on. And stop now, maybe. So in the beginning, you use just a little bit of water. And, and then you make kind of like a claw and do a circular motion. And the idea is that you use less water so the rice has contact with each other and you they kind of uh, grind against each other. Herbs. 
we have a nice mix here of different herbs. Again, seven is the important number because it's a lucky number in Japanese uh, culture. Japan is a, uh, a Japanese cooking has a great many rituals, and uh, this dish, nanakuzagayo, seven herb porridge, also has some rituals attached to it. When you cut the herbs now, it's important that you make an audible uh, thought on the cutting board. And the reason why you do this in, in Jap Japanese um, thinking or cooking is that it drives away the bad spirits. So it's important that the, the sound is really loud and audible. And from a more technical um, scientific explanation, it is uh, that you know, herbs, a lot, a lot of times they release aroma and flavor when you cut it, like that, or even if you, when you smash it in. So there's both the both the superstition of why she do it and there's also the more logical explanation. One of the keys to making this ritual is the sounding, about how you make sounds through the chopping. So it's about intention, being with silence, and thinking about bringing health to yourself and to others. It's about warding off bad spirits. So we're going to chop in order to do this. Being attentive and, and listening is really important to ideas of health. Um, and listening in the kitchen is really about being multisensorial, allowing, allowing our bodies to enter into rhythms and contact. So I wanted to read uh, a quote from the Korean Buddhist monk, Jiong Kwan, who is a, a chef uh, cooking all vegetarian food. In this quote, Kwan talks about different concepts of what it is to sense in the kitchen. So here's the quote. The tongue is only one of the senses. All the senses must move. Body, feeling, perception, intention, consciousness. End quote. So now we just chased away the bad spirits with our chopping, but unfortunately there's one bad spirit uh, still in the room, and that's the bad spirit of rice. We really made a lot of efforts to create a dinner that uh, meets our sustainability um, criteria, but we we didn't succeed completely. So we wanted to make this wonderful uh, dish, uh, the seven herbs porridge, And it's made with rice because rice plays, of course, a very important role in the Japanese kitchen. And we included rice, although we know that rice is not sustainable because rice needs about 30% of the fresh water uh, resources and it's also responsible for about 10% of methane emission. Um, but that's a kind of compromise we very often have to deal with when we want to cook uh, environmentally friendly. And I think that um, we have a lot of connections to rice. We have this kind of these traditions with rice. Um, so it's very hard to think of giving it up. It's hard of giving up, but when it comes to meat, we succeeded. So we have a, a vegetarian dinner, but... 
it also shows that we still have to learn a lot and find better alternatives to a lot of ingredients. And one of our ingredients that we chose as a, was to bring in a product called Tempty. Um, and that Takashi brought in Tempty. Um, and this is a, a brand based on um, mycelium, um, which was a kind of substitute for meat. So throughout this workshop we're working, we also put tofu next to this this new kind of a patty. It's, it's, it's wonderful, a wonderful texture. It's almost like a canoa patty, but it's made out of this kind of mushroom base, the base of the mycelium fermentation. And it's a product that was developed by people working here in the Kitchen Collective, two wonderful young women. So when we prepared it, when we organized it, so we, we met a lot of wonderful people who all, in a way, contributed to our workshop. Cool. Well, well, let's move on then. <laughs> <laughs> Change, change the scene. Let's go. Now we're back over there. Yes. Okay. So we'll do uh, vegetarian uh, gyoza. It's both uh, uh, fried hard at the bottom and steamed with the water when we finish it. And um, the ingredient list is fairly simple. It's uh, mushrooms, ginger, garlic, soya, sesame oil. And uh, this is something that adds to uh, the umami. It's dried shiitake powder and dried uh, seaweed. And uh, the Japanese kitchen has a great many things to teach, or well, great many lessons as far as uh, how to make things taste better and how to look at all these uh, underutilized food sources like seaweed. The seaweed that we have today is all uh, local from the northern part of Denmark. And it's a really important food source for the future because it's um, it has the great ability to bind CO2 from the atmosphere. So seaweed is actually CO2 negative. It really has a lot of uh, potential. And you know, just here in Denmark, we have more than 400 different species, of which my supplier forages 25-ish, uh, depending on the season. And um, it's, of course, high in uh, this umami. But flavor-wise, you know, it ranges from truffle to floral to herbs to licorice to you know, all kinds of vegetables and it's just a super important food source and a super important subject. It's the most ancient plant on earth. It gives us a lot of fresh air. It um, takes uh, carbon dioxide. It smells and looks fantastic and it's so unfair that we speak about seaweed i mean it's not a weed we really should uh, talk about sea vegetable or ocean vegetable and it's it's really not understandable that people in denmark or in in, in whole scandinavia that they do not appreciate seaweed i mean in earlier times at least they they used it as kind of nutrition a fertilizer for their their fields But uh, then they forgot about it. And it's only recently that we got aware of that seaweed is a, is a kind of superfood. I mean, it's, it has a lot of vitamins, um, it's nutritious, and it's, of course, very sustainable. So it's a perfect, perfect food, and we should just eat more of it. Oh, we have to wash our hands again, and then the second part is happening. So we have one more part, and then we're going to have our meal. 
My name is Ulrike and I study political science at University of Copenhagen in the master's program. I have tried to experiment with seaweed as a food source in my private life and I have made a dashi with which is a, like a fong made of a, or I, I used a Japanese seaweed for it so you make it into a fong and then you put it in your food for example the the soup dish ramen I have made that but I didn't actually know that we had a Danish version of the of the seaweed um, and then I have also been on a harvesting tour on uh, seaweed where I tried to uh, harvest my own seaweed which was also very um, exciting uh, but also a challenge to eat it afterwards because it can it can be very slimy for me I think I, I really hated the smell. I just liked the, the taste. So in the beginning, I would always like hold my nose. <laughs> and then um, I found that I stopped doing that. So now I don't think it smells as much. I would love to to get to know more about the Danish seaweed because the seaweed I use is not from Denmark, so it's not very sustainable. Uh, so of course, that's a motivation for me to try and learn more about Danish seaweed. Gyoza dumplings. I would place the dough in my left hand and take a spoon, put it here in the middle, and it's better to be a little bit conservative rather than trying to fit too much in. Then you need to take with a finger, dab it in the water, and draw half circle and the other half circle. And then fold the top part here that's against me. I just fold it down towards the other the other layer in, like this. And then you can kind of like squeeze the top like this. Mm -hmm. And then when you set it, it's important to put it on its butt a little bit like this so it has a wide frying surface. And don't worry too much about how many folds you get. See, here I did a few folds and here I did many folds. It, like some people will do like Ten folds and it looks really pretty and crazy. You, you're free to try it, but um, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. The important thing is that it's closed here, and then when you set it, you kind of press it a little bit because we're going to fry it this side down, and a wider butt means a bigger frying surface and then more crispiness. Mm. They can dry out a little bit, especially here at the top edge, so we need to keep them covered with a damp towel like this. Okay. The folding of, of gyozas is a, a shared activity, um, and the participants are um, standing around a table and begin folding together. Um, and when we cook, you know, many ways of knowing emerge, and they're bodily ones and they're repeated ones. Um, and this moment of folding is, is quite new for many people as we learn a new technique. So what emerges for me when I'm when I'm doing a new technique um, is sometimes disruption and distortion um, because our bodies aren't really used to making um, this thing. And when I'm folding this gyoza, you know, I have to touch it in a certain way. Maybe it doesn't feel balanced. Where do I put my fingers? Um, and maybe we do it with someone else. 
Um, that's kind of a fun, a fun idea of sharing this experience. So all kinds of ideas of the types and forms of contact emerge in this moment. What kind of contact is held within your food? Material ones? Um, human ones? What kind of um, memories emerge? Do you have a, a moment where you really want to taste it? Or is it a moment of, of strange kind of, what is this? How does it smell weird? These questions emerge even as I'm folding this gyoza. So, what I do is you have the high heat now, you have your lid, then you drink water, and then I tap, and you wait until all the water is evaporated. So sound always reveals uh, an action, an activity. It's an event that emerges. And um, the gyoza, frying of gyozas, is quite particular because we use our ears to actually know if it's done. So we have a lot of chops in the kitchens. We have bumps, bangs, crunches, smashes, and taps. But with this gyoza, we really have to listen. We have to listen to a certain type of frying. And maybe then, um, so when it's first frying, we listen to that frying moment. And then there's a moment where we add water and we listen to the hiss of the water and we cover it. Um, so there's a lot of unseen action. So we have to use our ears really, really specifically to know if this gyoza is done. And I wonder, like, what other recipes can you think of when that you actually need your ears um, to use where you don't have vision? There are actually quite a few of them. And what also emerges is this kind of amazing vocabulary of texture and kind of relationship to the material um, if you stop and listen and, and you have to know how to listen to know if this thing is done. And we'll come down here. Oh, yeah. We're going to do the seaweed at the same time. Now this uh, seaweed is actually for our dessert. This is a combo. It's from Shilanzoa, uh, and uh, we fry it at high heat, and it kind of like puffs up, kind of like a pork rind, and you can it should get like these nice bubbles at the top. Transfer it here to uh, drain it off excess oil, and then we dust it with a little bit of sugar and uh, dried uh, uh, kombu or orweed, as it's called in English, has this uh, wonderful uh, licorice flavor, and the sugar also helps amplify that flavor note. I did not grow up by the seaside, so seaweed has this kind of um, yeah exotic touch for me, and I was always fascinated by it. I always considered it as a little alien, <laughs> so eating it is, is a strange idea to me. Um, it's almost uh, it's almost like. Are you allowed to do that? <laughs> it's not disgust at all. Um, but but more, uh, ah, should we do that? I'm Stephanie Heine. I'm an assistant professor of comparative literature here in Copenhagen. But it's funny because, you know, we have so much coastal area in Denmark. And, I mean... Of course, there's the places where the water is contaminated and stuff like that, but it, seaweed should be a resource in the same manner as, um, 
as mushrooms where you could just go into the wild and forage. But so there is no seaweed is harvested in the wild. No one grows seaweed in underwater fields. Yes or no. Yeah. So they actually grow it on ropes. They have these thick ropes that they impregnate with the seaweed spores, and then they you know throw it on in water on a line, and then the seaweed grows from the rope. Det ser rigtig ud. Den kan godt være lidt varmere, men den er ret spor. Og så når I har den her, øhm, der ligger så ret meget olie på toppen, så det går lige lidt. Den ligger sådan her og vender og så lige vender den om. Så det er olie, der ligesom ligger på toppen, det kan, det kan ryge ned. Og så tager man en fejlig smule salt og sukker. Ja. Og vi tager, bare alle, vi tager bare de store stykker, ikke? Ja, ja. Vi kan også kvittere øhm, dem hele, og så kan vi knække dem senere. My name is Sara Strunge, and I work at a small environmental organization called NOAA, where I work with supply chains and companies and lots of other things. I think a lot about food in terms of culture and in terms of climate change and systemic change. And I think food is a great gateway to understand a lot of the issues that we are in. I mean, agriculture takes up like, it's the third most polluting industry in the world. And yet it's the most important part of our life. Like it's, we need food to survive and it's a part of pleasure. It's part of coming, coming together and like having dinner and having conversations. It was like food is really a way to create community. And I think this workshop is an amazing example of that. And like, how can we use different ingredients to have new conversations, open new topics? Um, and I think I want to do more of that. Like in my activism as well, my work as well. Like, how can we cook together instead of like serving people? Just like, let's come together and cook the meal and talk about where did it come from. It, it's a lot on my mind. I spend a lot of my day thinking about uh, ingredients and cooking and where to get the food from and how can I get nice foods and try new foods and yeah, it's it's a lot of my life goes with this. Okay. 
Yeah, the seaweed is so good now. This is what I like with seaweed. Really proud of our seaweed. I mean, it really tastes like it. Did you make it? I did. Yeah, some of it. Thank you. My name is Stefan Kreiberg Knussen. I was invited here. I'm from Bloom Festival of Nature and Science, and quite overwhelmed in a positive way that um, it was such an um, engaging uh, workshop that I um, I got to to cook with other people um, many of whom I have never met which is a very uh, communal thing uh, which you normally only do with uh, people that you know intimately and it's been um, been been festive but also really um, bonding kind of experience but in in a good way and I, I think that speaks for the transformative potential of, of, of cooking and and yeah trying trying to get out of the private space of uh, cooking just for yourself or your loved ones and try to build new ways of um, cohabiting space and and doing it with food I think I was equally affected by processing uh, seaweeds that I haven't cooked with before and um, folding gyozas which I I didn't have any experience with earlier and finding out okay I have a knack for this I can I can fold beautiful gyozas and I think um, the fun part of doing this on a Friday uh, Friday evening is to uh, get out of your own element and into a completely new one and find out that okay um, I can just uh, get into this space and find out what's happening. So it's now time to conclude this um, this wonderful evening of cooking and eating together. And for me, this has been about really connecting in different ways and learning about different kinds of relationships. And for me, that has to do a lot with listening, um, listening to each other, standing back and having different types of conversations, working with our bodies and nonverbal um, forms of connection and learning about all kinds of different um, ways in which we are transformed through both ingredients and talking about them and these sustainability questions. And I wanted to conclude with a quote from Anna Singh and her book, um, The Mushroom at the End of the World from 2015. And this is definitely part of this feast that Sophie and I created with Takashi's help. Here is the quote. Our daily habits are repetitive, but they are also open-ended, responding to opportunity and encounter. What if our indeterminate life form was not the shape of our bodies, but rather the shape of our motions over time? Such indeterminacy expands our concepts of human life, showing us how we are transformed by encounter. You can meet Melissa Fundry, who just gave the closing statement of the workshop, in another episode of this podcast, where she takes part in a panel discussion with Jane Bennett, Emma Holden, and Lars Tunner. Be sure to check that out if you haven't already.
EcoThoughts is produced by the Center for Applied Ecological Thinking at the University of Copenhagen, Denmark. Thank you very much for listening. And please do share this with others if you liked what you heard.